0: the role is very different. It's unique. It's how can I keep this person safe or how can I help them while they wait for treatment and then knowing that that treatment may never happen. So it's challenging. You're listening to the Sioux Podcast with your host, Brian Keeney.
1: This is the place to hear from members of the Sioux St. Marie community and beyond.
0: We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories and experiences.
1: Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on The Zoo Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sioux podcast. I'm your host Ryan Keeney and today we have a very special guest joining us. Megan Lambert is a mental health advocate and a highly experienced clinical social worker who has dedicated her life to helping those struggling with mental health issues. She is the owner and founder of ML Counseling Services and she has made it her mission to provide support, guidance and resources to the people of Sault Saint Marie where she's lived for eight years with her husband and two boys. Before relocating to Sault Ste. Marie, she ran a private practice in Barrie and Collingwood for a number of years. Megan holds a bachelor's degree in social work from Ryerson University and a master's degree in social work from York University. Megan is also a certified trauma counsellor and a member in good standing with the Ontario College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers. Combined with her years of hands-on experience, these credentials have equipped her with the knowledge and expertise to make a meaningful impact in the lives of those she works with. For example, Megan has worked in a variety of clinical and grassroots settings, including shelters, child welfare, medical settings, hospice, as well as EAP and psychiatric settings. Although Megan uses a variety of therapeutic tools and strategies to help her clients, she specializes in solutions focused therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT. Today, Megan is here to share her insights on the current state of mental health in our city as well as discuss some of the ways we can work together to create a brighter future for everyone. We'll be talking about the signs and symptoms to look out for, the importance of early intervention, and the steps we can all take to support our loved ones and our community. So without further ado, I'm happy to welcome the highly qualified and knowledgeable Megan Lambert of ML Counseling Services. Welcome, Megan. It's really exciting to have you on the show today.
0: Thank you. I'm actually really excited. This is a new thing for me, so thank you.
1: So, Megan, one of the things that I find really exciting about having someone who is as credentialed and experienced as you are on the show is it just feels so insanely relevant to what you hear about so much in the Sault Ste. Marie community. To be clear, there's a lot to love about Sault Ste. Marie. That's why I moved here. It's a beautiful city. I've come to know a lot of amazing people that live here. But that being said, the reality, at least as we see it in the media and on social media, is that there's also a lot of struggling that happens in the Sioux area in terms of people's well-being, their mental health and addiction and that sort of thing. I think all of us sort of worry for each other as a community, whether you are thinking about your loved ones, people in your immediate circle, or just the community at large. It's just such a big topic. I can imagine we could probably talk about it for hours and hours and hours, but for the amount of time we have in our podcast episode today, I'm really excited and interested to hear what you think about what's going on in our community.
0: As am I and I love Sault Ste. Marie too. We're not from here but I can tell you that what we're seeing in Sault Ste. Marie is not entirely different than other communities are seeing as well. We've had this really interesting few years with COVID-19 and people very isolated and stress and fear really. So what I've been seeing in terms of the community and my own practice is a real increase in anxiety depression, addictions. Certainly we have children and adolescents really that have missed significant gaps in terms of their social development academically, but in my opinion, and you can disagree, people can disagree with me, but really in terms of their social development, their emotional well-being, we have these large gaps of time where teenagers have not had that experience. So what I would say, and I've been saying this to other colleagues as well, is Anyone who's predisposed to some mental health issues prior to the pandemic, what we're seeing now is a lot of those issues have really exploded. And that's why our systems in the community, so Canadian Mental Health, Algoma Family Services, private practitioners, are really, really overwhelmed because the needs are so much higher, I have found, since the last three years. For example, we have kids, we have adults that are having a difficult time, even with self regulation in terms of conflict. We have kids, and I know I'm talking a lot about kids, and this, of course, applies to everyone. Oh, go on, yeah. But certainly, kids and adolescents seem to be a pretty popular topic right now. How do we help them? What do we do? Schools are certainly overwhelmed in terms of mental health issues. It's... In some ways, and I always try to take a more positive approach. So in some ways, some of these issues I think are good in terms of this really opens the door to conversations. And it really forces us to look as a community, as individuals, well, what do we need to do differently? Because the need is much too high. So again, this is happening all over. This is not just a Sioux St. issue. It's happening everywhere. And that's kind of has been my experience.
1: And what do we need to do?
0: adults and kids are different and I'm going to talk for a little bit about kids and teenagers for sure that's who I see a lot of okay I think what we need to do is beef up support so let's look at schools we have big classrooms we have a lot of kids we have a lot of different needs and the expectations that we're placing on schools and teachers to resolve this is probably not realistic I think in a perfect world where this would start some of it would be in the school so Can we implement programs, right? Can we add in supports? What do we do in terms of, because let's be honest, our kids spend eight hours, you know, six to eight hours there a day, five days a week. The teachers in school see our kids sometimes more than us. That's the reality, right? So I think it has to start there. I think what I always tell people, and this is interesting because people actually forget this. When they look for private therapy, so private practitioners, there's a cost, right? There's always a cost to that. People often forget that most often you have coverage, you have EAP, you have coverage, people forget that. I think we need to do a better job within our community in terms of our physician, in terms of our community agencies at reminding people that because often people will not reach out for help on the assumption is, well, we can't afford it. And then what happens is we rely heavily on Canadian mental health, community mental health, Algoma Family Services. And the wait list sometimes are six months to get into programming. I think we need to do a better job at educating. So what are the actual supports we have? What can you access through your employer? Can you access through the community and certain funds? I think that would be really important for us to just generally be a lot better at that because we are not, you know, and I've had this conversation with physicians and I had one physician say, Why well, I, I forget that. So EAP programs, benefits are really great at bridging a service. So let's say you have a child or let's say you're an adult and you're waiting for treatment or you're waiting to get into one of these agencies. Well, why not access a benefit you have and bridge that gap? So you're not waiting six months without services. And let's be honest, in six months, that problem you're experiencing could be a lot worse.
1: That was going to be one of the questions. In fact, that question went right through my mind. As you were explaining that to me, I was thinking to myself, well, what happens if someone is facing an issue that can't wait six months? What if something really serious is going to happen inside of that time frame, whether it's within the next 24 hours or it's probably going to come to a crisis situation sometime within the next couple of weeks? How does someone in a situation like that deal with that?
0: A crisis is different. We do have a very good hospital here. enough, when I work with people or when I have that initial phone call with someone there have been times where my practice there has been a wait list and I recognize that this may be a situation where that person is in crisis so part of my job and not just mine but I would imagine every social worker every agency is reminding what we have so we have a hospital we do have a crisis line this is really when supports come into play so family supports friends part of my job really in that initial phone call with someone knowing that let's say hey I can see you but not for another month. In that initial phone call it's really important that I pull their supports in. So what do you have right now that will get you through this? Who do you have in your life? I talk about family but of course could be anyone right? And then here's the crisis line. Here's when we go to the hospital. Do you have a safety plan? So what's your safety plan if this gets out of hand? That's a big part of our job and It can be frustrating because it's a Band-Aid solution, but that's what we have to do until we can get people into the appropriate services. I really pride myself on that part of my work in terms of we need to be resourceful. So we need to look at who is in your life. Who is in your life? Who do you trust? And who can you go to? And oftentimes what I will do with their permission is loop that person into that conversation. So here's where we're at. So I'm happy to see you. I can't see you right away, but here's what we can do right now. And in Sault Ste. Marie in a small community, trust me, you have to be very, very creative sometimes in what that looks like. Yeah, I imagine that's yep. a,
1: a particular concern, especially the demographic that would be tuning into a show like the Sioux Podcast. They'd be thinking to themselves, well, how am I supposed to turn to so-and-so or so-and-so because they know that person and they know that person. It's There's very much this sort of environment where like, You've got that everybody-knows-everybody sort of feeling.
0: That's a different issue, though. Trust me. The advantage I have, I think, is I'm not from the Sioux St. That's very appealing to a lot of people when they walk up the stairs in my office, is I don't have cousins here or whatnot. Right. But the seriousness of mental health will outweigh and should outweigh somebody finding out that you're going through something. I agree. I'm really clear on that, right? So if someone's in crisis and what do I do? okay. You know, who do you have supports? Well, so-and-so, but they know so-and-so. And my I challenge them in terms of, well, we have to figure out what's more important, right? right. I am very much, and I look at, I know we talk the talk in terms of taking that stigma away from mental health, but we have to practice that too. Supports and health come before someone else finding something out. And that's really how I frame it. Yeah. And we have to place value on that.
1: Yeah. And it feels like having conversations like this, especially in a digital public forum, could perhaps work towards that goal of removing that stigma. It's possible that someone hears this episode and they think to themselves, you know what, I think I'm going to tell that person that I was reluctant to speak to that I'm going through this.
0: I think that's important. And actually, I think one of the positives that came out of the last three years is that we relied more on each other. And it was really an interesting time. We were physically disconnected in many ways, physically disconnected. But in other ways, I think it allowed us to grow more emotionally connected. I had this conversation with a friend of mine. It's like, I haven't talked to this person in 10 years, but I had a FaceTime with them during COVID. I think it really enabled a lot of that in terms of, well, I'm stuck in my house. I can't actually physically see anyone. So I'm going to start talking to people, which was important that we didn't want to feel isolated. I think one of the benefits of COVID-19 was that it allowed us to share more. It allowed us to be creative in terms of how we were reaching out to someone and what we were telling them. Because let's be honest, it was a really difficult time for a lot of people. So I think, yes, I think if you are struggling, the best thing you can do is tell someone. It doesn't have to be a professional. It could be someone who you trust, but loop somebody in so they can provide some support. And if anything, I think we've learned that in the last few years that we really do need that as social creatures. We need to do that.
1: Right. You mentioned earlier that a big part of your practice is assisting youth mm-hmm. and teens, that sort of thing. What sort of unique challenges are the youth going through that may be somewhat distinct from someone, a client that comes to you who's in their 30s or their 40s?
0: The big difference is social media. So there's a variety of platforms. I'm going to focus on one of them in particular that seems to be more problematic. And look, and I have two kids too, and they're very much in that world. The unique challenge that teenagers face is certainly different when I was a kid because we didn't have any of this, is social media. This idea that I can say whatever I want, I can even create an account that's not under my name, and I can say things I would never say to someone face-to-face. It's this idea of, well, it's online bullying really, but it's to me it's it's more significant than that because what platforms do like that is it creates a generation of youth that have almost no ability to deal with conflict face to face. So it's very easy. I could sit here and type something to you right now and say all sorts of things. Would I ever say that to your face? Absolutely not. Would someone say it to my face? Probably not. But online they would. And that's very unique to that age group. So this ability to solve problems, and I say that very loosely over Snapchat and say horrible things that you have no idea or control how that person's going to react to that. What happens then is when that carries over to the schoolyard, for example, is you have two people who have a complete inability to, two things, to solve a problem and to self-regulate their emotions, right? right? So what that does ultimately creates a generation that is just very anxious. I don't have confidence that I can solve a problem. I don't have any coping strategies because my coping strategy has become typing on my phone. That creates a very unique feature. When I see these kids in my office, it is insecurity, it's low self-worth, it's anxiety, it's self-doubt. I don't know how to control my feelings. I've relied on this platform that has done me really a disservice. That's unique to that age group that I think most adults they're not on. Like I'm gonna talk for myself. I don't go on Snapchat. (laughs) But again, and I see it in my own kids. I see conflict happen and what is being said is really horrible. So the new thing, and I, if that's okay if I talk about it, the new thing that we're seeing on some of these platforms is this kill yourself. And wow. it's not the full word. It's K-Y-S. Hopefully I'm doing that right. And it is being thrown out all over the social media universe. Kill yourself. For some kids, okay, they may react and they may tell the kid to get lost, but there's another segment of kids and teenagers that will take that very personally. So think of it you're already struggling, you're depressed, you're anxious, maybe you don't have a lot of support, and some person tells you to kill yourself. Well, that's problematic.
1: Seen, you know, I'll save that question for later. You know what, the question I want to actually ask while you're explaining this to me was when you're dealing with such a enormous beast like bullying on social media, it seems like an intractable problem society-wide. How do you Focus in on one specific client, one specific adolescent, one specific person, and give them the tools to overcome something where they're being told these like horrific things on Snapchat or TikTok or whatever, right? Like someone's messaging them and you can't just, it's not as simple as like, well, just block the person. Okay. Yeah. You won't hear, like there's still, especially if it's someone who you know amongst your friends or whatever, and they're doing this to you online. Like, so how do you work through that with a client?
0: Well, I think it's, a couple things. It's about establishing boundaries, so healthy boundaries. The conversation we have in our house often is you don't have to have everyone on Snapchat. You don't have to be friends with anyone. Like The expectation, and you see this a lot in teenagers, well, I want to be liked. Being popular is still pretty important to these kids. You don't have to be friends with anyone. It is establishing boundaries. The blocking issue is interesting, right? Because, of course, you can create different accounts and this can go on and on and on. Right. One of the strategies I use often is I will encourage someone to take a social media break. That's a two week break. Go off social media because you and I know sitting here, that person's not going to miss anything in two weeks of being off social media. And I know this sounds strange, but it is almost like a detox these kids go through because they're on it all the time. So the strategy is, could you take a break? What would that look like? what would be negative about that? So challenging a little bit of thoughts around, so what's the worst that could happen by not being on Snapchat? Right. Right? Nothing. Reality is absolutely nothing. So part of that is that talk, that conversation with them. The second thing, of course, is trying to pull out what are the specific feelings. Is it, I feel insecure? Is it triggering trauma? Is it, making me feel I'm not good enough. So part of our work is to determine that, you know, this big giant balloon of emotions is to pull out the very specifics, right? My work is very much kind of guided by the client I have sitting in front of me. A lot of that work is up to them. Hey, how do you feel? I feel really insecure. Okay, let's start there. Let's start there. Why do you feel insecure? And then develop some strategies around that. Part of those strategies, of course, are taking a long, hard look at the role that Snapchat or TikTok play in their lives. It's complicated. It's a big, giant beast. Right. And one of the things I will say is it's happening to everyone. It's in some ways that can give some of these teenagers some relief is that they're not the only one. They're not the only one that's doing this. So it's very difficult. It's breaking down what the feelings are. It's encouraging social media breaks. Which is, I know, a very, very difficult thing. I mean, look at, I'm on my phone all the time, to be honest. And I've really kind of started to realize, like, what am I getting from this? Right. What am I getting from this? The other part of this is, my husband and I were actually talking about this, is there's no motivation for these kids to get together in person. Wow. So if I can go on Snapchat, and now I have two boys. So I, you know, I'm talking just in terms of their gaming, you know, they're at home on a Friday night. If I can just jump on Snapchat and chat with all my friends, where's the motivation to see someone in person? Right. Where's the motivation to solve a problem face to face? There's none. That's, to be honest, the bigger issue is it's taken away any desire, any motivation to actually get together with kids. And that's where they develop these skills. Think about it, if you're having conflict, well, if you don't get opportunities to practice how to solve that, you're not gonna be able to do it. It's complicated. It's difficult. But I think you go where the client is. I got this horrible snapshot. Well, how do you feel? What is it about that message is triggering this reaction in you? And then okay, let's develop some social media boundaries. Let's go through your friend list. Are they your friends? And I mean this is kind of funny, right? It's like, well, I have a thousand friends. Are they your friend? Or are they just someone that added you? Right. So even the concept of who is my friend has gotten pretty skewed, right? So I think part of the discussion I have typically with teenagers is go through your list. Who is your friend and who is not? And if they're not, why are they there? Right. So it's boundaries. It's relationship boundaries. And it's a good skill to have because you can transfer that over, of course, to real life. Right. So why do you want people in your life that are horrible and nasty?
1: Yeah, I've found that, especially with certain individuals that for my own mental health reasons, I came to the decision to just say to myself, you know what, maybe I'll be better off. I'll be less stressed out, be less jarred all the time if I didn't have this individual in my life because of the poor choices that they just continue to make again and again and again. And I've come to that conclusion where it's especially some of these were very, very long friendships where I thought to myself, here are I don't know, maybe like a pros and cons list in my mind. I'm like, here are all the pros and all the good things I get from this friendship. But at the same time, here's all the ways it's adversely affecting my life. I think at this point, I just need to cut that person out and move on. And I have found when I've made those choices that my life and the experience of my day-to-day well-being has dramatically improved when I've done things like that.
0: It's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's not a complicated concept. Right. Right. The problem, the challenge, of course, is that as adults, we're better able to make that decision. So I think that's when really the role of parents, educators, caregivers comes into it as well. So having those conversations, if you notice a sudden change in your teenager or child's mood, ask questions. The conversation in our house, and maybe this is unpopular, I'm not sure. So the way we see it is, Social media is a privilege. It's not a right. Right. So it's a privilege, right? This is something that there's been a discussion about. We're allowing you to have it. It's not a right. It has to be taken seriously. It just does. It's boundaries. It's like, sure, you can go on Snapchat or TikTok, but you need to be on it all night. And chances are, no. I think it comes down to really honest conversations with our kids. So what's going on? What is someone saying to you? And, of course, you walk the line of being too involved and then letting them figure it out for themselves. But what I will say is if you have a child that's behavior has changed drastically, more than likely something is going on on social media. And so then as parents, that's an opportunity for us to have the conversations. Right. And establishing, is this healthy? Right. Is this making you happy? Because if it's not, why are we doing it?
1: Right. Well, actually, so... We have someone right here who can comment on all of this. <laughs> Jason, I could, yeah. yeah. Jason just recently turned eighteen, uh, last month actually. Right. He's a lot closer to that generation, that demographic, and can definitely probably I would say speak more accurately to what than I ever could compared to myself. And of course you you have all your clinical experience, so you're right. in a very good position to comment on it. But these are just not things that I get to see on a daily basis of what is it that from a mental health perspective, what is it that the young population is going through compared to like when I was growing up, right? There's a lot of things. I imagine. St- uh, stuff that you may or may not want to say on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very accurate, actually. Yeah. Whether it be something that they take at the house or right. friend influence or something like that, you see a lot of stuff. Right.
0: Yeah, and because it's, I think, such a big part of their life, it becomes significant. I find, and you can jump into it, but it snowballs. So right. it's this idea that someone said this as someone, I'm going to screenshot it, right? And yeah. I'm now going to share it with 500 people. Oh, I've known so, adults so, that have done that. Or right, just but one person that one you trust. Per- exactly. Yeah. But yeah. then let's be honest, we're talking about teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of keeping things close is not always great. Yeah. And then so think of the social ramifications for that kid. All of a sudden, you're kind of a social outcast. And then what? So then you've got a kid who is depressed, anxious, isolated. Because of what? Because of one message. And kids don't understand that. There seems to be, and again, right, I think it's the lack of face to face. It's very easy to say whatever you want, hiding behind a screen. It's a very different reality to be face-to-face with someone, right? So I think the social ramifications, I think kids are probably, teenagers, kids, I'm going to assume, are sending things that are likely illegal, that are likely, if someone reported it, right. could be problematic. We don't talk about it, though. Right. We don't talk about it. And so when I have teenagers, and it's really interesting... When I actually have a teenager in front of me, I have to constantly remind them to put their phone down. Wow. When I talk about like this detox addiction kind of type behavior, like I mean it. It's remember, you need to put your phone away. You need to put your phone away. It's constant like this. So think of it. Your life becomes that. And so what goes on on those platforms becomes, well, it defines in many ways who they are. And so it makes sense to me that it would have such a detrimental impact on their mental health. Right. When I was a kid, and I'm older probably than both of you, but when I was a kid, we didn't have that. So in many ways, my generation was better in terms of conflict resolution and how do we deal with a problem. But this has taken a lot of that away, unfortunately. And that's when you do get kids that feel bullied and they feel anxious and they feel insecure and I'm not good enough. And those feelings and thoughts can quickly spiral into something quite serious if it's not arrested early on.
1: Right. I know that one of the big topics in Sault Ste. Marie is addiction and substance abuse. Now, I don't know to what extent you see that in your particular practice. I imagine it's something that oftentimes doesn't end up in front of a professional because the people that are going through that may not. They may choose not to seek help or they may not have the resources to go seek help. But to the extent that people are ending up in the presence of a clinical social worker where they're battling addiction and substance abuse issues in Sault Ste. Marie, to what extent have you come across that? How do you feel about what's happening with all that stuff and what we do about it?
0: Well, I feel sad for sure. And even in the short years my family's lived here, I've certainly seen it decline in terms of, I mean, if you walk downtown used to be at night, but certainly even during the day, we're seeing that a lot.
1: Sorry to interrupt you, when you say decline, do you mean less issues? No,
0: sorry, I mean more. For example, the building I work in gets broken into often. There's definitely been a shift, and I don't know why. To be transparent, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's a combination of the last few years. I don't know if it's related to, we have, let's be honest, like economically, people are having a difficult time affording rent, groceries. We have a variety of issues on that level. Part of the challenge with addictions is when someone says I'm ready for help, that needs to happen immediately. Because if it doesn't, the next day they could change their mind. So there's a real delay in service. And that's not, again, that's not a Sault Ste. Marie issue. That's a Canada-wide Ontario. That's a huge issue. Sault Ste. Marie in particular, we don't have the resources. We simply don't. We have detox, but then we're looking to send them outside of Sault Ste. Marie for actual help. Typically, when I get someone in front of me who is actively in addiction, knowing that I can't get them into treatment tomorrow, my role is safety. Are you safe? Are you living somewhere? Are you using clean needles? We do have a needle exchange. What are you doing to keep yourself safe? Have you eaten? Have you gone to the food bank? the role is very different. It's unique. It's how can I keep this person safe or how can I help them while they wait for treatment and then knowing that that treatment may never happen. So it's challenging. When I have someone in front of me that's completed treatment and that is an active recovery, then it's really about coping strategies. Part of that conversation is what led you down that road to begin with. Typically, it's trauma-based. So something happened as a result this is what I turn to. I mean, drugs are drugs, so they probably feel great when you take them, right? So if you think of it, something horrible has happened and you don't know how to cope, drugs become a pretty quick and easy solution to that. Like an escape. Absolutely. They feel good. They're addictive for a reason, let's be honest. So part of it is pulling on coping strategies. What led you there is a resolve. And if there's not, We need to continue those conversations and implement tools. And in terms of when you're faced with that again, what can you pull from that maybe you couldn't before? A big part is their social circle, part of living in. Now, this is, in fact, a small community challenge because you can go to treatment and you can do really, really well. But if you're coming back to the same environment with the same social circle, the likelihood of you succeeding in your sobriety is low. And that is a small town challenge. I'll tell you that. That's not to say it doesn't happen in Toronto, but certainly when we're in a small community, when you come home to the same environment, the temptation is there. Part of our job as clinicians and as a community in general is, okay, are there other social circles that you could get yourself involved in? That's the real challenge here is it's small.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I've personally seen that myself in the Sault Ste. Marie community and- as you say, because it's such a small community, I obviously am not going to name names or anything like that, but in my time socializing with various individuals here in the Sioux, I have come across examples where a person is, or a group of people are heavily influenced by their friend circle, or so-called quote-unquote friend circle, where these are not, I don't see those types of relationships or connections as genuine friendships I see them as groups of people that all share an addiction and that addiction is what is tying them together but it's not a real meaningful human connection
0: no and it's codependency it's a codependent community so what do you have what do I have let's pool our resources so that's not a friendship you're right it's codependency but often of course when you're in that world when you're living in that world it definitely mirrors support it mirrors a family We know in addictions that there's a high rate of family breakdown, high rate of trauma. So when you put yourself in their shoes, that community, although we can sit here and say, of course, that no, it's not genuine and whatever, but to them it is. And so taking them out of that is very stressful, especially when you're dealing even with an intimate relationship. So if I have a client that she's really wanting treatment, but I will only go if my boyfriend goes, well, he's an addict too. That's likely not going to happen. So right. it's a codependent, it's a trauma bond is what we call it, a group of individuals that have experienced a high level of trauma and that's their bond. Right. And we see that a lot in addictions. I've been abused. I have two. We're using, this is good. This is like my family. And it is in many ways. And it may, for some people, the only family they know. That's difficult. So think about it. As I leave for treatment. I come home. Well, how do I not see them? It's very challenging. Right. That I think is a big part of kind of why we see what we see right now happening. Right. Small town.
1: As you're explaining that to me, I was thinking about Johan Hari's famous TED talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong, where <laughs> you've probably seen it yourself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyone who's watching me on YouTube or listening to me say this in an audio format, go check out, if you haven't yet, Johan Hari's TED talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong. It's an amazing. TED Talk, where he talks about how the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is human connection. And there's a lot of, I guess, reason to believe out there that if we're able to provide people with meaningful, healthy human connection with other individuals who are not users and addicts themselves, and that it will meet that need that that person has, that void that they're trying to fill with drugs, they're filling it with human connection and it can yeah. help them get through that maybe. I don't well, know, I hope. Pa- it's pain. Right.
0: So it's pain management and I call it that and maybe not necessarily physical pain, but it's definitely pain management for deep emotional pain. I think as a community, as human beings, we have to dig deeper right. in terms of our patient level, our patients and our empathy. I have found that we have very low tolerance for addicts. Very, very low. I'd say for any other group, right? Right. We have this concept that, well, it's their problem. They choose to do that. That's their choice. When we think that way, we have no patience. We get angry. We get upset every time there's a break-in. Every time there's this, it's, well, it's a lot of anger. I don't know if you've seen it too. It's certainly been my experience that we just don't have tolerance for that community I will tell you something in my, all my years of practice. I have not known one person that has made an active choice to be an addict. I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to use drugs. I don't think they exist. I think it's an illness. I believe that it's a disease. And I think we would have more sympathy with anything else. If somebody was physically sick, I think we'd be more tolerant. But we have developed this real negative stigma, negative association, negative relationship with people who are struggling with addictions. And I think they probably feel pretty worthless when that's happening. No one makes that choice. Nobody, I think, wakes up and says, today I'm going to become a drug addict.
1: It happens over time.
0: It happens over time. And I would encourage people to really think of that drug is replacing something they need and they are in pain. And I think if we as a society can shift the way we think, then maybe we can start making more of those connections and have a little bit. And I get it. I get it's tough. I get it's hard when stores are broken into. I get it. Like, I get angry, too. I just think we need to dig deeper. And I know it's hard. I get it. I know it's hard. But I think the payoff would be great.
1: Right. Jay, could you mute your phone or your smartwatch. Or yeah, anything. I can do that. Yeah, I'm hearing the Snapchat notifications, <laughs> which is highly relevant to what we were talking yes. about before. <laughs> I might even just leave that in and not yeah. edit that out of the podcast. That works too. <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, and I just, sorry, and go just, ahead. I yeah, just yeah, want to say one more thing. This addiction piece is we have this general idea of who is an addict. What type of person is an addict? And I will tell you it's everywhere. This idea that if we keep people, you know, our, we protect our kids and we keep them insulated and we make money and we do this, that they're going to be shielded from this is very dangerous. It is a very dangerous way to think. This idea that, oh, well, it doesn't affect me because that guy's homeless and this and that, it, it's, just, it's not true. It's so fascinating it's not that true.
1: you clarify that, that you say that, because as you were explaining this to me a moment ago, one of the thoughts that was going through my mind was... The demographic or the profile of an addict that a lot of people on social media might assume is this like sort of very narrow Mm -hmm. illustration of the truth, of the bigger picture, right? You're thinking of this sort of like, let me put it this way. I've come across individuals who are highly educated, lots of success in their career, high income earners, homeowners, that sort of thing, families. You would think based on their accomplishments in life, both personal and professional, that they just wouldn't fit the profile of an addict who was wreaking havoc on themselves and the people around them. But for whatever reason, they still, and it's like what you were saying, it's pain management,
0: right? And and all humans
1: are susceptible to pain, of course. So go on. Yeah.
0: And I work with families in my practice and they have an adult son or they have an adult daughter that is an active drug user. And they now have to protect their home. So these are people who contribute to society, to our community. They work hard. And that's an example. So, would they have ever thought their child would fit the criteria of a drug addict? Absolutely not. Right. Absolutely not. I think we need to move away from that way of thinking. And I think we need to expand our minds in terms of this could happen to anyone. Right. It could happen to my kids. This could happen to anyone. So, I think. Because of that, we would be wise to do things differently. It doesn't continue to happen. But at the rate we're going, what we're doing, I don't see it going away. I just think our attitude really needs to change. And until then, I think we're very much stuck on this kind of hamster wheel of Band-Aid solutions. Right. And I know that's very negative. No, <laughs> I know that's, that's okay. very No, negative. It's, it's we're here to talk uh, about the real issues. Probably not issue, what so yeah. you wanted to hear. No, but, no. no. Uh, I'm, not, I'm
1: not fishing for anything specific. And look, at, <laughs> I'm I'm
0: guilty of it too. I'm not. Yes, I'm in the profession. I'm not immune to that way of thinking, though. I mean, look, at, I work downtown, so when I see a business get broken into, of course, right? There's that initial reaction of anger, and sometimes you'll hear people say, "Well, they're just stealing for drugs." Yeah, maybe, maybe that's true, but the reality is. You're then in a situation where if they don't have that drug, they will die. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I mean by hamster wheel. It's like, well, if they don't do it, then they die. So what do we do? Yeah. Right? So now
1: we're getting into the, sort of the physiological impact yes. of withdrawal and, yes. the, and the risks of that. Like people yeah. ask, well, why don't they just stop? And it's like, well, there's physiological reasons why that's dangerous.
0: There are. And you have to think of it. This is why I always say to people, you have to almost put yourself in their shoes, right? In terms of. Well, why would I stop? What do I have? Why would I live? This is my life, right? It's that kind of way of thinking. I know, look, we talk about the world of addictions. We know that there's a high percentage of drug addicts that have been sexually abused. So if I haven't dealt with that, and that's what I'm living with, part of me, I don't even blame them for wanting to numb that out. Someone has to be motivated to enter treatment they have to be motivated to stop but it's difficult to find that sometimes and that is sad it's difficult so that's why it always goes back to as a community how do we change the way we think when we walk by someone or when we drive by someone how do we change that right and it's difficult I don't have an answer for that <laughs> I wish I did if I did I you know, know, know I'd be does. great but I wish I did but I really try that education piece is I don't People don't choose to, well, some people do, but most people don't choose to smash a storefront window and steal just for kicks. Again, some people do, but most often it's means to an end. Right. And I think we need to address that. I don't know what the solution is. I wish I did. It's hard because I do. I am downtown. So I do have that kind of feeling when we hear a business get broken into, you think, oh, here we go. What is frustrating? It's frustrating to everyone, I think, involved.
1: And I think that probably makes you a lot more relatable to everyday average Sueites who maybe are looking at their therapist as the person who has all the answers and is just like, know it all, right? (laughs) No, I do not. It's like where you you acknowledge your own limitations that you don't have a crystal ball or a magic pill. And it's like, that makes you all the more human, right?
0: I think so. And look, and I always tell people, and I do fundamentally believe this, and at my core is you have the answers. So, My job really is to help you discover those but you have the answers and for whatever reason you're not finding them or they're hidden or they're blocked but really at the end of the day the client's the expert. You are your own experts. I don't have all the answers. I look at myself as someone to help pull some of that information from you but you have it. I don't. I don't know all the answers. No, I do the best I can and I try to be very honest and transparent and real with whoever's sitting across the table from me.
1: Right. And I think about another aspect of the addiction issue is that people have conceptions in their mind of what sort of substances come to mind when we think about like the quote unquote addiction problem. Like it's just, well, a bunch of people who are all hooked on cocaine, for example. And it's like, well, no, that's part of it. But there's also people who have a overwhelming dependency on alcohol. Absolutely. And, and maybe it's multiple substances. Maybe it's alcohol and it's cocaine. Maybe they have, I think, an often overlooked addiction or things like a food addiction. Yes. Or a video game addiction. Or yes. it like becomes so out of control that it starts to affect their ability to earn an income. It affects their ability to connect with their family members, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Addictions come in all forms. We're talking about drugs, but yes, alcohol, food, pornography for sure yep. is a big one where we're seeing lots of. What they have in common is escapism. What they have in common is I need to escape. I don't have a way to cope with these really deep-rooted feelings. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something where I get immediate relief. Right. And that's what it's about. It's about this immediate relief. Because trauma is painful. Depression is painful. These are painful, painful things. A lot of people are ill-equipped in terms of how do you cope with that? A lot of people are ill-equipped in terms of who's in their life. Who do I turn to? So it makes sense to me that the addiction rates are high because it's immediate. I can feel better immediately. And that's the same with food or video games or whatever. It's an immediate, I feel better. Right. It's unhealthy, yes. But on some level, you get it. You get it. This is painful. I don't like this. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to cope with it. It's too much. This Feeling of I'm just overwhelmed, right? And what's the quickest way for me to feel the opposite,
1: right? I would say, for my part, the first time I was really exposed to community-wide substance abuse problems was actually not in the suit. Was actually when I was back in law school in Windsor. And when I say community-wide, I'm not speaking about the whole municipality of Windsor. I'm talking about the law student community. The population of a whatever couple hundred some odd maybe two or 300 law students that were attending that school in my graduating year i imagine it affected all of the graduating years that were there at the school so it's actually a larger population than i just mentioned a moment ago but my point is you take a look at that community and you think about and you can read about this online as well the amount of alcoholism that occurs in law student populations i always found that interesting while i was in it And for years thereafter, I read about, well, what is it that drives people to that when they enter that bubble? And some of the things I learned was that you have this sort of perfect storm of students who are away from their friends and family, and they don't have that ordinary support system and social connection that they had prior to maybe moving away to law school. And then you combine that with extreme levels of stress and pressure and fear of like oh if I don't keep up with all of this there goes my future there goes my career there goes mm. my financial security you're away from your family you have financial pressure and fear and all that and then you're also surrounded by people who are competing with you you're all applying to the same jobs you're trying to get better grades than the next person in your class so not only are you away from people that make you feel safe you're surrounded by people who make you feel unsafe right yeah. at least academically because yeah, they're, sure. they're your competitors yes A lot of What happens with these students, I could say it definitely happened for me as well, is they turn to this alcohol-driven lifestyle, which seems harmless because the whole party lifestyle of university and the advertising industry is making this look like a fun, normal thing. But I imagine in moderation, it can be a fun, normal thing, but like in excess, which is generally what you see in law school environments, it's in excess. It becomes a problem. It becomes, for some people, an addiction. And then that, sadly, it carries on long after law school. You see right. the profile of the alcoholic lawyer who's like, by day, super high-functioning. Yeah. They're in court, they're at trials, they're representing clients, they're making money, they're doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then on the weekends, they're, or in the evenings, like there's this other life Binge that they're drinking. living. Yes. drinking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've seen lawyers go through that. There were chapters of my life where I personally struggled with that. I'm proud to say that today, because of the human connection and love and loyalty and happiness that I get from my family. I don't feel like I need those things. But.
0: And that's what makes it different. So for you, the motivation was family. So I want to be well, If this isn't good. And I want to be the best person I can be for my wife or my son or whoever. But put yourself in that same position without that motivation. And it could look very different. Right. I think that's the real struggle can say yes you have to get well for yourself and that's very true but does it help to have an incentive yes it absolutely does and I think when you look at kind of even what we're seeing in our community you have to look at that and again it goes back to motivation it goes back to incentive like hey I want to get well for this yes for me but I want to be here in the next 10 years it's that ability to look forward I'm here right now but I want to be here in 10 years And how do I get there? There has to be some insight in terms of that. I think what you brought up is actually really interesting because I think it also goes back to parenting styles too. And I think what we're seeing now is, and look at I'm guilty of it too, for sure, is you see a lot of parents fixing problems for their kids. So instead of giving them the tools, it's I'll figure it out, I'll fix it. What happens with that, of course, is we think we're doing the right thing. We think that, yes, we should shield our children, we should fix things, and that's our job. But what happens is, and that's what made me think of it when you're talking about university, is that so then when you take those same kids that their parents have fixed their problems for them and you put them in a highly stressful environment without mom and dad or mom and mom and dad or whoever that is, when you talk about perfect storm, there it is. I'm going to tell you something. I work with parents on this. I struggle with it myself in terms of when do you allow or what occasions do you allow them to problem solve on their own and make mistakes? Like there's benefit in that. People have to make mistakes. That's how they learn. That's how we develop our skills. When you don't do that, you have kids and young adults who go away and they don't know how to cope with any kind of not only stress, but I'll tell you something any kind of rejection. We see that a lot now too. Any kind of challenge. They have no ability to do this. Naturally, what happens is sometimes what we see is we see higher levels of addictions. Drinking is one of them. Well, I don't know what to do. I'm super stressed, and mom and dad are in here. How do I do this? I think it's a bigger conversation, actually, and it's relevant mainly because my kids are at that age right now. But in terms of someone once told me this story, and I thought it was really interesting. And at first, I was horrified. <laughs> but then when I actually thought of it, I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. So it was about a guy, and he was about 12. He's older now, but he's 12 then. And he got into a fight on the school year, like a physical fight. And as he was getting punched or whatever, he saw his mom walk by, and he saw his mom look, but she didn't come over to help him. At first, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't believe I was a mother, but... I kept thinking about that story. And so he actually, when he tells that story, he says, actually, it was really pivotal in his life because he said, I knew at that point I had gotten myself into that situation and now I had to get myself out. What's interesting, right? It's like, would I have walked away? I don't know. Now, did that mother hang around to watch? Probably. But the point of that story also, she didn't go right in and fix it. And I always remember that story because I had this initial reaction, but then as I thought about it, I thought, yeah, like, are we raising kids that don't know how to solve problems or cope with adversity? Is that what we're doing? And is that the right thing to do? So I hang on to that story all the time. It's one of my favorite ones because I'm like, yeah, she probably did the right thing. And he was fine. He got out of it. They shook hands that he was fine. But the moral of that story is we can't always swoop in as parents. We just can't. And it's hard. And I know, but we can't because we need to equip them with better strategies. So when they do go to university or where I often life, they have something to fall back on.
1: Yeah. Does that I, make sense? or is that, Are you yeah, horrified by no, that story? No, no, <laughs> no, no, not at all. I was reserving my comments <laughs> until I was able to <laughs> gather them together and tell yeah. you about my own personal experiences with that exact same sort of message. It's just wild to me. In my life, I've come across a lot of people who had a lot of different parenting styles. And it makes me think about the parenting style that I was exposed to as I was growing up. And then that gives me reason to think very deeply about my own parenting style and the kind of adult and parent I want to be and that kind of thing. These are such big topics, but they affect you a lot. And I do have things to share about it. One of them That I wanted to mention was like, I think growing up, I was raised in an environment where you had parents that, like you were talking about earlier, adults who have problems regulating their emotions. Mm -hmm. Unequivocally, that is the sort of toxic environment that I myself was raised in. As a child, I was around adults who had almost no ability to regulate their emotions. And combine that with like a completely over possessive, controlling parenting style, just the notion that a child is going to be able to get the opportunity to resolve things on their own, to work through things on their own, to overcome obstacles like you were just talking about. That notion was just on another planet in the environment that I was growing up in, which in my mind, it was one of several different things which caused me a lot of trouble and that I had to resolve as I grew older and I had to overcome that sort of childhood trauma. But it's crazy to me to think that sometimes, let me just put this thought together. I was talking to Tracy about this a few weeks ago. I was telling her, you have to go through so many steps to adopt a child. As I'm sure you know, there is this legal process that's in place and professional comes to your house and sort of evaluates your home and your family and that kind of thing.
0: So both my kids are adopted. So, oh, yes, yeah, wow. so <laughs> yeah. okay, so well, I know, you exact, go. I know yeah. exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yes. So I
1: had no idea when yes. I made that comment. I, yeah, you know, that's okay. I, it's not like we talked about that in advance or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, so no. there's this tremendous effort that's put in to ensure that the child is going to be in a safe environment that is not toxic to them and as it should be. And then I think about like, well, there's all these kids out there who are in very unsafe and <laughs> right. toxic environments. Yeah because their bio parents just didn't live up to the minimum expectations that we would expect if you were an adoptive parent. I used to be, in previous chapters of my life, I used to sit there and think to myself, well, woe is me, right? I had this awful, terrible start in life, and it hurt a lot, and it put me in situations where I was sort of pre-programmed to make choices that were not good for me. But then I moved past that, and I was like, well, I don't want to waste my life being upset about that. I don't want to waste my life Making those same bad choices and then wallowing in self pity. I want to do things with my life that enrich my life and enrich the lives of people around me and put that other stuff in the rearview mirror to the extent that I can. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. some parts of you as human beings are, I believe, inalienable. You get the start in life that you get, you get the cards that you're dealt with, but you can, I think, choose what you want to do with that after a time.
0: I think so too. I mean, I think. Look, the reality is no one will have a perfect childhood. No one. You know, I was fortunate. My parents are great people. They did a great job with my brother and I. The interesting thing is, and I think this is a generational thing, when I was a kid and I thought about this a lot in terms of even my own kids and then working with kids now is kids now tell their parents everything. And to be honest, when I was a kid, I didn't. I don't know why it wasn't encouraged. It was maybe kind of what you're saying, it just wasn't what we did, right? Right. Kids now tell us everything. And sometimes I wish they wouldn't, (laughs) right? Because I think everybody's (laughs) life would be so much easier if they did not But I think that's part of, so it's wonderful. In many ways, it's so great, because there's this push on sharing. And I, gosh, like, it's so great when my kids do talk to me, you see who they're going to be. And it's pretty great, right? But at the same time, I think, and again, I am not sitting here as someone who's perfect because I do this happens to me is the more they tell you, the more you're thinking, Oh my gosh, I have to fix this. This is bad. It's gonna hurt their feelings, right? You can see how it goes. It's different. So I didn't tell my parents everything. So I solved a lot of my stuff on my own. Now some things, of course I did, but this is different. This generation's different. And that's what we see. We see a lot of just sharing. Which is great, but gosh, some of the things my kids tell me, I gotta tell you, I wouldn't tell my parents and not because they're not (laughs) wonderful, they wouldn't have embraced that, but I certainly wouldn't. Part of the challenge, of course, is that as a parent, you're still the parent. And so part of the challenge is also finding that line of you're not their friend. This is what I see a lot of my practice is I see parents come in and say, my kid's out of control. They're out of control. They hate me. Whatever. And part of that is is that somewhere along the lines, there's been a shift between parent and buddy. If your child treated you like they treat your friends, there's gonna be a certain level of disrespect at some point, right? right? So when someone comes in and says, Well, my kid's out of control, the first thing I ask, and I want to understand is, Well, what are the rules? What are the expectations and what are the boundaries? And I'm telling you, often there's none. Wow. Though often there's none, it's the child who's in charge. And that's how it goes. Let me tell you something, when you've got a teenager that you've allowed to do that, yeah, they're going to be out of control, right? So I think with this oversharing, and I call it oversharing because I think it is, you do have to be very cautious that you remember your role. Your role is to enable them to solve problems and to not do it for them. I'm guilty of it. I'll tell you, The other thing is, is you parent your kids very differently. So I have two boys and they're very, very different. So I parent them very different. My friends who will listen to this will know that what I'm saying is true is one of my kids I'm much more overprotective of. And so I parent differently. And thank God my husband is the kind of parent he is, or else I will tell you, I would fix all his problems if it was up to me. Right. But what that results in is him not necessarily having the skills to be able to do it for himself. And that's hard. When you push them to do that, you get some resistance from that. Well, what do you mean I have to do it? You know, what do you mean? You're not going to do it for me. But the reality is, and what I say to both my kids is, you're going to be out of the house soon. You know, I'm raising two men, essentially, is how I look at that, right? And that I want you to be confident and capable and be able to do things on your own. So right. it's difficult. But the best thing we can do as parents or caregivers or whoever is in this kid's life is... Give them the tools, but let them do it and let them fail. And it's really hard to watch, but let them fail. Let them lose a friend. That's how, you know, when you think about it, that's how adults learn. We're held accountable. And so we have to do that for our kids too, and it's really difficult. And it's something I struggle with, and I'm telling you, the parents I see in my practice, that's that's a challenge. How do I allow them to do this? How do I back off?
1: And how do you find these parents react to or internalize the advice that you're giving them?
0: Well, the one thing is they're never surprised. So most often by the time they're in my office and I'm saying something, they've already had that thought, like, we we need to change this. And sometimes I'm the kind of push they need. It's typically receptive. People are receptive to that. And people are usually in my office because they're looking for change and there's a recognition that what we're doing isn't working. And we love our child and we want them to succeed and we can see that they're not right now for whatever reason, there's an awareness of we need to implement certain things. This isn't just for teenagers. This is even adults living with their parents still, because there is a lot of that, right? How do you establish boundaries and rules when you have a 23-year-old living at home? Do you know what I mean? So it's really important early on to establish those rules, the expectations, healthy boundaries. Even though they're your kids, you can still have boundaries, right? But typically, parents who come to see me are very receptive and very eager to implement and do things differently, knowing that initially there's going to be a very negative reaction from their child. But over time, it typically works out. So it's always that line of yes, even with your childhood. Like, yeah, would it have been great if you had the space and environment to be able to problem solve and to have those conversations? Absolutely. So it's always finding that balance, that Yes, as a parent, we're here, we're going to support you, we're going to help you, but we're not your friend. Part of that is you need to figure things out on your own too, with us here beside you. Right. That's the difference. You can't do it for them. That's when I think when you loop it back around to university or coping strategies or addictions or alcohol, the better we equip our kids and teenagers with, okay, how do we function in life, the better able they are to draw from those experiences rather than go to something that is going to affect them really negatively, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of <laughs> right? sense. Yeah. And it's tough. Really, really hard. Imagine this <laughs> my tough, husband yeah. will listen to this and he'll be like, yeah, she needs to listen to her own advice <laughs> with one of my kids. And he's not wrong. I do. <laughs> but you parent kids differently based on their personalities. Some kids are able to do things other kids aren't. That's fine.
1: Yeah. There's been a lot of talk on social media about this concept of intergenerational trauma. And I had a question about that as you were talking to me about the relationship and the dynamic between parents and their children and that kind of thing. To what extent, if any, do you find in your practice where parents are coming to you and their own behavior patterns are being influenced by the trauma that they may or may not have experienced from their own parents?
0: Oh, all the time. So initially I would meet with parents before I would meet with their child to get a decent amount of background and one of the questions I ask them is tell me about your own childhood (laughs) so what was that like for you how did your parents parent what was their parenting style did anything happen because that's very important if you for example have a mother that was raised in an alcoholic home she may transfer some of those feelings over to her own kids we know alcohol parents are emotionally unavailable and That's a result of the addiction, not a lot of affection. So, that parent unknowingly, and I say that, I believe in that unknowingly, be emotionally available to her own kids, not out of malice, out of we do what we know. Even though, and I hear this all the time like, oh, I'm never going to parent like my mother and my father. And I will tell you, you do. You do pick up on some of those things, it's inherent. So, yes, I think it happens all the time. I think if you have a parent that went through trauma in terms of abuse, you may be looking at a parent who is very overprotective of their child and to the point of suffocating. That's not based on the child. That's based on the parent's experience because the parent's experiences are something really bad happened to me and I don't want this to happen to my kid. So right. as a result, I'm going to really shelter them and I'm not going to let them experience things, right. which isn't good either. So. When we're parenting, it's really, really important to kind of check in and say, well, am I doing this or am I making this decision based on what's best for the child I have in front of me? Or is there influence on my own childhood? It's always, why am I doing what I'm doing? Yes, that's a very important question. And that's right. something we talk about right at the beginning. What was your childhood like? And parenting style is important too. So yes, I see that often.
1: I find that so fascinating and I find that so personally helpful and enriching for me. Yes. Because as you were saying that to me, I was just reflecting in the back of my mind. I'm like, yeah, like that rings true. Like my parents, both of them, more so I would say my dad more than my mom, but both of them would have problems controlling amongst other emotions. One of the emotions they had problems controlling was anger, they were prone to fits of rage. And one of the things that I had promised myself that I would never do to like a stepson or any child that I raise is ever engage in that kind of behavior. And I'm very proud to say that I haven't, like I've never done that with Jason. And what I was thinking about as you were telling me this was, well, maybe that's just the first layer of the onion, right? Maybe behind that, it's not just about don't do the bad things they did. You also have to actively do the good things yes. they didn't do, right? You were talking about the emotional yes. unavailability and stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, like that's an aha moment for me. Because home was not a place where I received a lot of compliments or appreciation for good things I was doing. If I was doing things right, it was silence. If I was doing things wrong or according to them wrong, like it was, you know, terrible. Think about my approach with my relationship with Jason. and oftentimes. I have to like actively put that extra effort into being like, hey, yeah, good job with that. Cause my dad would never say that to me. I think I don't do it enough. I feel like I should do it more. And to be honest, <laughs> sorry about that, Jesus. But no, like, well, it's, it's fine. fine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> right? I'm at work but anyway. Yeah, he's at work <laughs> most of the day anyway. But yeah. like, yeah, in the times that we do talk during the day, it's like these mental acrobatics you have to do when you weren't dealt the right sort of example when you were growing
0: up when you talk about an onion the other piece i think is helpful for people too is to understand their parents and we don't often we look at our parents as our parents and we don't take the time to understand who they are as people so before we came into their lives who were they what was their experience and that's not to say what they did is justified right so we're not saying well okay we're not going to hold them accountable but I think it's important because I think in terms of if we're looking at a scenario where I have a client, an adult client, who a big part of their process is forgiveness, let's say. They were raised in an environment and there's a lot of forgiveness that needs to happen. A big part of that is understanding the reasons why. And I think that people, parents, for the most part, do the best they can their best may look very different than our best. Their best may have been horrible, but I think it's important in the process to understand why did they raise us the way they did. I think the more we can understand that, I think the more we can heal ourselves in terms of maybe it wasn't about me. Do you know what I mean? It was about them.: Yeah, I was there, and I bore the brunt of that, but it was about them. And I think that's an important piece, And as I've had kids, I've thought about that a lot more. I've reflected and again, my parents are great people and I'm very, very fortunate, but you do, you do see yourself doing things similar to them or opposite. And you start to kind of question like, okay, why did they do that? I need to understand that. So I think it's interesting, but I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful. if We can look at our parents as human beings yep, that yep. are separate from them being our mom and dads. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, you and hit I, the nail on the head. Yeah, with that they're human. They were humans before us. They yeah. existed before us. Yeah, And I think that can be really helpful in terms of any kind of process of forgiveness Yeah, and moving forward in terms of, I'm going to do things differently.
1: It's so relevant that you say that because my parents did live through a very traumatic, violent civil war in their country. And they fled their country because of the... Just the lack of opportunity and the chaos and the devastation that they were seeing there. It was very much a horrific place to be. And they came to Canada for a better life. And then I was born some years later. I have an older brother. He is six and a half years older than me. So he wasn't born long after they came here. But then I came along much later. So this was a chapter of their lives that I just, I was so far removed from. My brother probably has some more information about it and sort of sees them from the lens that what you're describing more is like sort of total right. whole human beings that have gone through some stuff and i can only imagine the extent to which that affected their life especially back then my dad was born in 49 1949 the world just didn't have an appreciation for mental health and therapy and that kind of thing this was all relatively recently it seems like the value and attention that society is placing upon The mental health space is really just in the last like maybe 15 to 20 years.
0: Yep. Yeah. We even actually argue a lot more recent than that. Right. But you're right. So it's like looking at that experience and how does that change someone? And more importantly, how does it change their perspective on life? That's what a lot of it is, right? So if I learn, if I have experiences that teach me that life is hard and it's challenging and it's traumatic and Stressful, then that's going to carry over into my day to day life long after I'm removed from that environment and that situation. It's almost like PTSD. So, when we look at war and things like that, it's that impacts us for the rest of our life. And so, inevitably, that would carry over to how we parent. Those experiences would carry over to that. But yeah, it goes back to we need to understand our parents as individuals. And I think that goes a, a really long way. That's not letting someone off the hook. It's just the more we understand. And I think there's room for compassion too. And I think that's what that enables, which is really what forgiveness is all about. Right. Right. And it's important. It's important in someone's process. Even if you grew up in a physically abusive home, horrible experience. In terms of that trauma process, in terms of that therapeutic process, it's tremendously helpful for that person to understand the why that's important doesn't make it better but it does add a different element to the story that I think then becomes a talking point well how do we process that how do we understand it so it's yeah it's interesting it's very much so when I parent my kids oh my gosh I see so much of my parents so much of them. <laughs> and My mom, if she listens to this, will be really happy to hear that, actually. <laughs> but I do, because it's what I learned. It was my experience. Now, I do things slightly different, but for the most part, yeah. So when I'm working with parents and there's a concern about the relationship between them and their child, I always ask, tell me about your childhood.
1: Great. Megan, I know another topic that the audience is really going to want to hear about because it's just so relevant to our lives. And is relevant to what we've been talking about regarding other topics in this conversation that we've had so far. We're talking about families, parenting, and codependency. So another big issue is what the world of dating and relationships is like to manage and navigate through. People talk about getting into unknowingly a toxic relationship with someone. You know, Mm -hmm. attracted by their false charm and all this other stuff. And then once they're in it, it's almost like you're caught in the spider's web, and it's like so difficult to leave. It's a huge huge topic that I imagine we could spend, like I commented earlier, we could just spend hours deconstructing that one topic. But to the extent that it's relevant to your practice, in your clinical work that you've seen, clients that you've come across, how are we supposed to go about as human beings looking for meaningful human connection and intimacy in this very, very different dating environment than what the world was like before technology and everything else? And I imagine there's other factors that have been working on it as well.
0: Yeah, it's a different world entirely. So most people now who are meeting people are online, whether it's through Snapchat or a dating site, or there's countless, I know, but the days of meeting someone out at a bar (laughs) are not as common anymore. There's pros and cons, of course. So given that if you're meeting someone online, there tends to be a longer period of getting to know you without a physical element to the relationship. Now, having said that, that's based on whether or not that person's being honest. So again, when we go back to that conversation about it's easy to create a persona and to be someone online, that you aren't in reality. But given that the person's honest and there is kind of a safety net in terms of meeting someone that way, in terms of a longer period of what you like, is there a connection? What I'm seeing and what I see a lot are people, individuals in my office who have a pattern of toxic and unhealthy relationship and they often don't know there is a pattern until we kind of talk about it and then when they realize that they're like oh my gosh like why like why am I doing this so that's kind of interesting in itself we all have patterns we all have a type typically most of us have a type of person we like to date whether that person's healthy or not is irrelevant and that's the challenging part sometimes our type happens to be a not healthy individual The first thing I think in terms of these toxic relationships are establishing is do you have a pattern of having them and then why? So if I'm working with a young adult who is now saying, oh my gosh, my last five relationships all have these elements, okay, why is that? Is that about them or is it about you? But I'm going to talk about women. Women in general tend to fall very much into a caregiver role. So I'm doing everything for them. The person I'm with is not emotionally available, but I'm really emotionally available. And I've done this more than once. What are you getting from that? What are you missing? Whether a relationship is healthy or unhealthy, we still get something from it. And so a big part of breaking that cycle is understanding what am I getting from this that I'm not getting elsewhere. If we talk about someone who finds themselves always in a caregiver role, Well, what does that say? Did I not get that when I was a kid? And now I have this need to give it to my partners. That need, though, is not paying off. The relationships are not going anywhere. So, the first step I think in terms of entering into a relationship is understanding that part of who you are. Do I go for the same type of person? Is it healthy? What is my role in a relationship? How do I see my role? And do I want that to look differently? The first thing in terms of that is to really understand yourself in terms of who you are in a relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes <laughs> yeah, a lot right? of sense. Yeah, right. And yep. we usually don't spend a lot of time doing that. We usually meet someone we like them and then, like you said, we're in it and then it's difficult to get ourselves out of that. I think if we can develop a greater sense of self in terms of who we are and establishing what we need. What do I need from a partner? What do I need to feel healthy, secure, and loved? I will tell you, More often than not, people don't have a solid idea of what that looks like. I'm attracted to you. Great. Sure, there's these red flags, but that doesn't matter. And part of that is because we don't really have a good understanding of what we need. Right. So that's really important. The other thing I find is people's conception or people's idea of what a healthy relationship is, isn't developed either. So when you think of a healthy relationship, what are the elements within that relationship? Now we can talk a lot about our parents and we can talk about our parents are typically our first example of a relationship. Given your situation growing up, you would be wise to look at that as well. Oh, of course. Was the example I was given something that I want for myself or do I want that in a partner or am I looking to do something very differently? Those are important things. Understanding ourselves, our needs and really challenging our idea of what is a healthy relationship and those elements that are important.
1: Right. Going back to the social media topic you talked mm-hmm. about earlier in this podcast episode, social media seems to me it's either uncovering something that was already there or creating a problem that perhaps wasn't there or even make a pre-existing problem worse. I don't know what the nuances of it are, but it's certainly having this polarizing animosity that seems to be brewing between gender lines where it's like you see all this content on social media that is either really deeply anti one gender or the other you're like it's either super anti-women or it's anti-male there's this seemingly in my view unnatural discontent that's brewing between and I'm speaking from a heteronormative perspective and I understand that there's nuances that apply to perhaps the LGBT community that's for not, sure not yep. applicable to heterosexual couples but speaking from that perspective it's like aren't we on this planet to be in harmony with each other like as human beings aren't we craving yeah. this social connection I don't know if anyone has these answers but where is this sort of like almost hatred coming from
0: the roles I think and again My thoughts are the roles are changing in terms of what masculine, feminine, typical roles. And I think within that comes confusion. So it's really interesting. Again, I'm raising two boys. So I'm basing it it off them. We teach them, you know, you open the door and you're polite. But my son said, no, what if my girlfriend wants to open their own door? So it's kind of a confusing time too, right? So everyone's trying to figure out what's okay, what's acceptable. and, And that level of respect. One of the challenges, though, is that I think people are also afraid to approach each other and to develop those relationships. They don't necessarily have the skills. Where that kind of hatred or I don't know, I don't know where that's coming from, but I definitely understand what you're saying. And I definitely see it on social media. It's almost like a bashing in some ways, right? So you're right, whether it's against anti-male, anti-female. What I will tell you is that certainly doesn't help in terms of people being able to form a relationship right or being open to one it's difficult i wish i had the answer for that and it's hard i don't know where that comes from but it's a challenge i think the expectations placed on men and women are different they'll likely always be different but i think with that also comes a disconnect that's what i see it's a disconnect well i'm doing this and i'm doing that you're supposed to do this i'm so it's a disconnect which is what appeals to the online part of that meeting someone online i think it's much less threatening in many, many ways. Yeah. But I, don't, I see it. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know. But I know it's a problem. I know it's hard. And it's really making people hesitant to approach someone in terms of starting a relationship or asking even anyone out on a date. Yeah. How do you ask someone on a date anymore? It's funny, my friends and I were talking about this the other day. Like, how do you do that? how do you do that without offending someone or without being too abrupt? It's tough. Yeah. I don't know. Like I said this to my husband, it must be very difficult to date right now. And it probably is.
1: Yeah. Cause it it almost seems like the only way to do that is to just like match with somebody on some app. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, well I don't really need to approach someone in real life and ask them on a date in a respectful and courteous way. I just have to like Press buttons on my phone until I match, and it's just like, okay, well, know. now what? <laughs> like, I
0: know, and then it's so it's hard because right off the bat, even doing that is not creating a connection or right. clicking a button. Right now, do those relationships work out? Yeah, sure, all the time. It's wonderful, but I think it loses something, in my opinion, only loses kind of that personal connection. Right. So I think it's challenging. Yeah. I know. Like I said, the days of kind of meeting someone out and about are kind of going away, I think. Right. That's my opinion on that.
1: I think people are craving or calling out for some sort of like expert advice on stuff like this. Because everybody wants to be an armchair psychologist or like claim to like, well, I read this Google article that said, it's like, well, no, it's like you need years of clinical experience to truly understand some of the more complex layers behind these things. So when you do share your advice on stuff like this, considering how credentialed you are in this, I think people are going to really need to hear it from someone like yourself.
0: Well, I don't know if we need to make it complex. It's really interesting to me because I think some of it is just core kind of common sense. I talk about respect a lot, right? Respecting people. And I think it comes down to that. I think that, you know, what you said earlier, gosh, wouldn't it be great for us to live in harm? Men, women, again, we're speaking from heterosexual. but Yes, it would be wonderful. Do I think it's possible? For sure. Yes, I do. And now you have to remember too, and this is, I remind people this all the time. What you see on social media is not necessarily true. I had this conversation with a colleague of mine and you always have to remember that there's an element of getting like hits. There's always an element of dramatics. So I think we have to take everything we're hearing and seeing with a grain of salt as well. And bring it back to basics to some degree. That's what I think too. Gotcha. Yeah. But I think in terms of relationships, generally, I think it's really important, whether you're meeting someone online or in person, to really have a sound idea of what that person should be. Because when I work with people who have been in a very, very unhealthy relationship for years, what I will say, and what I believe is I think people show you who they are early. It's up to us if we want to see that or not. And guess what? A lot of times we don't. But people do show us who they are. And it is smart and in our best interest to really pay attention to that. Now, does that mean you write them off? No, not necessarily. Does it warrant a conversation with them? Probably. And then it's up to you to understand, is this something I'm okay with? But Red flags show up early. I work with a lot of kind of adolescent girls, and we're talking about this idea, this notion of what's a red flag? Well, what is it? It could be anything, and it could be different for anyone. How I explain it is it's your gut instinct. So if your gut is saying to you something is off, listen to that, explore that. And I think teenagers, it's hard, you know, a lot of insecurity issues, right? They want to be in a relationship, they want to be like, so a lot of times they kind of push those down. And it becomes pretty problematic, usually later on. But how do we equip people to listen to those? And how do we equip people to see them early in a relationship? And I find that's a struggle. And that's when we see very, very toxic relationships.
1: To what extent in your practice serving the Sault Ste. Marie community, things like cheating and affairs and stuff, sort of tearing apart families and relationships and And how is that sort of overlap with other issues that we're seeing, where it's like maybe that is happening in parallel with other problems like addiction and that kind of thing?
0: So I see it often, not with every client, but certainly often enough to have some experience with it. I think it's funny addictions affairs, and I think there's these common themes that run through them. And we have to look at affairs in terms of well, why do people have affairs? Why do people do them? I'm fairly sure, and I could be wrong, fairly sure. The idea is not to deliberately hurt someone. And I know that sounds like a strange thing to say, given affairs are very, very harmful. But when you look at this concept of escapism, so something is going on in my relationship with myself that I don't want to deal with. So instead, I'm going to create this alternate reality. And what affairs allow us to do in many ways is to create another self. So think of it things aren't good in your marriage, things are not good in your personal life. You meet someone that you connect with. And you get this opportunity to be whoever you want to be. And there's a safeguard there in some sense because you're not living your reality with this person. So the appeal is there. I think we can understand the appeal. The problem, of course, is because it's not reality. It's not real. So the second you go back to your partner, well everything is amplified all the problems are magnified because you've just had this experience where you can live free and be who you want to be and then you go back to this partner thinking oh the problems are all still here so it's in many ways it's escapism men and women have affairs for different reasons we know that i mean we've looked at it for years so with women it's much more of an emotional connection men it tends to be physical that's not to say it's not emotional either so the differences are there But the reasons behind them, there's definite similarities. So yeah, we do see that a lot. It's hard to be in a relationship that's struggling. It's hard. It's a lot of work. It makes you vulnerable to meeting someone else. It makes you vulnerable to taking a compliment a different way. So I think it comes down to communication. But I think the reality is, and this is why it's interesting, because when we look at marriages that break up because of an affair and that person tries to have a life with the person they had an affair with, those relationships don't often work because when you look at it, the relationship wasn't real. It wasn't based on real facts, most of it. So yeah, that's kind of what's kind of going on with that in my opinion in terms of why that seems to be happening.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it sounds so relevant to the overall direction that society has gone in where people just have so much fake in their life like Look we have at, fake relationships right. we've even invented fake money and like <laughs> we have food that's designed to taste like a fruit but it's got zero percent fruit in it right like everything around us is just so fake and I guess yeah. that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about what people are chasing when they're looking for an affair they're looking for like an alternate reality that is not real that's fake as well it's just this obsession with desiring that which is not authentic for some whatever reason
0: well and They're easy and in many ways they're easy. So to do the work as a couple and say, we have a major problem here. Marriage counseling is difficult. It's emotionally difficult. It can be volatile at times. So it's not pleasant in the beginning. It's a lot of work. It's a big commitment. And so often it's like, well, I will just ignore this. I'll ignore this because I'll get what I need from this other person. So it becomes a double life situation. It's not reality. We push escapism all the time. We push it in video games. We push it on Snapchat. We push it all the time. So it makes sense to me in many ways why affairs are on the rise. It makes sense to me. Absolutely, it does. We always have to look at ourselves in terms of what we bring into a relationship. Let's put it this way. In order to have a healthy relationship, you need two somewhat healthy people. So Both people have to have commonalities, same goals, same interests. There has to be something there that's the glue that keeps two people together. We have to be somewhat self aware and healthy ourselves. If we're not, we also bring that into the relationship. Some of those are how do we deal with conflict? So anyone who's been in a relationship, there's always conflict. I don't care how great your relationship is. There's always a degree of conflict. Well, how do I deal with that? Do I avoid it or do I deal with it head on? What I find with couples is, It comes down to that a lot of the time. So how do we deal with issues? Do we deal with, um, I'm going to go escape, this isn't fun, I don't like it, or are we going to sit at a table and hash things out, or are we going to go get help? So a lot of it comes down to your own ability to deal with that, for sure.
1: What can be done to attract more service providers, more professionals, more highly credentialed social workers and therapists to this region Given that there is a demand, given that presumably there is an avenue for such professionals to make a good livelihood and also do good work to a population that's in dire need of it, like how do we sort of, from a business perspective, attract more professionals to do that in this region of Sault Ste. Marie area?
0: So, first of all, we have to have buy in that Sault Ste. Marie is a great place to live, which it is. It is. As Sault Ste. Marie grows, my hope is that people will come here and want to work. I think. As social workers or private practitioners, I think we have developed a fairly decent network. If I have someone that is not my expertise, I know I can call someone else. I think a big part of it is to highlight what we have here in terms of mental health to make it appealing and welcoming to people not from here coming here and setting up shop. I think that's a big part of it. And I think we still don't do that really well in terms of, hey, here's the great services we have. Let's highlight some different practitioners every month. Let's make it really visible. I think that would go a really long way. Make people buy into Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, let's change the conversation around how great it is to live here. And we have all these great resources. What I would love to see, almost like a quarterly kind of review or magazine. Like, hey, let's feature different practitioners in mental health. Let's distribute it to the hospital, to group health center. Let's distribute it to Toronto. Let's make people aware that there's some really fantastic practitioners here. But I'll tell you, because we all have wait lists, there's always more. There's always room for more. Right. And I think we're very fortunate. So I think there's ways to do it. I think it would be welcome to have more practitioners up here. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love it.
1: From that perspective, that is something I think we have similar journeys in that regard, where it's like about... Approximately eight years ago, you made the choice in your professional career to relocate here and build that career further, because as you say, and I quite agree, like this is a great place to live. And then for myself, I had that legal career in the GTA, and I decided to take the next step in my career over here. By and large, I do think that professionals are coming here. Obviously, there are very real issues concerning attracting more service providers and growing the population rather than seeing the population of the Sioux shrink. Maybe it has to do with real estate prices. I don't know. Maybe it's just become so unreasonable to try to acquire real estate in the GTA. And when you're looking at that and you look at the really affordable cost of living over here, at least for now, and maybe that changes in the future, professionals who do earn decent income and do qualify for mortgages, they'd rather take that mortgage that they're qualifying for and have that dollar go further with quite a comfortable piece of real estate here in Sault Ste. Marie versus a relatively smaller piece of real estate, not nearly as glamorous for probably a lot more money oh, absolutely. In, in the GTA, right? Absolutely. So maybe that's something that the Sioux could use to attract more professionals.
0: I think so. I think there's so many great things about Sault Ste. Marie is why we're still here. I mean, my kids like it here. It is a good place to bring up a family. You have beautiful beaches, stunning views. It's good. I mean, is there room to grow? Of course there is. But I think even in terms of when we first moved here to what it looks like now, there's been really significant changes. And I think if we continue to do that and invest, I think we'll see a return on that. And hopefully that return is more professionals coming up here and really understanding the unique needs of our community. Yes, I hope so. That would be great. I would be really happy for sure, right? I mean, and again, I always say to people, The fact that there are wait lists is just an indicator that we don't have enough. I think what I would say to anyone wanting to come here and open up a private practice, I think there's lots of opportunity for that. Absolutely.
1: Amazing. Megan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio today and discussing these issues with you. I know that mental health is something that is really important to me. I imagine it's very, very important to our audience, and I've had a chance to Even talk to you a little bit about my own journey and how that's unfolded. And I imagine there's a lot of people out there who, if they're able to carve out the time to sort of really listen to and digest some of the things that you've talked about, I believe that it could have a really, really meaningful impact on people's lives in this community. Yeah. So thank you.
0: And thank you. And yeah, I would just say that if you're struggling at all, then now is the time to get help. I think if you're on the fence of whether to get help or not, if you're actually even on the fence is a good sign. Go and talk to someone. Because I think the payoffs are so good. So worth it. That's
1: good advice. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the
0: Sue Podcast. Follow us on Spotify,
1: Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com. That's S-O-O podcast.com.